0: Welcome back to Meet Kevin Report number 34. Super excited to be here, February 25th. A lot to talk about today. Today we're going to be talking about uh, not only what's going on with households, household savings, balance sheets, important topics here. We're going to be reacting to some things going on in politics, and we'll also be talking about what's going on with this Cantillon effect, uh, which is pretty interesting. French effect that has a lot to do with inflation. So we'll talk a lot about that. Thank you so much, by the way, for being here and your comments uh, in the morning. Uh, For example, here, Victor, thank you for posting this three minutes ago. Just wanted to say thank you, Kevin. Made my first million in large part to your inspiration with rental real estate. That's amazing. Honestly, I I say it almost every day. I think the best way to make your first million dollars is in real estate, (laughs) rental real estate. Uh, So many people uh, uh, that I say that to then respond with the usual objections, which I hear all the time, which are like, I I, I don't have the down payment. Oh, I don't have the credit. Oh, I, you know, I I can't qualify. Uh, And and those are usually the first objections. And then generally I respond to these objections with, well, then get educated so you can get a better job. We could start there. You know, if you have a W-2 job, it's pretty dang easy to qualify for real estate. If you don't have the 20% down, then put 3% down and potentially get a... Median income home buyer grant to get into real estate. The the, the objections are usually extremely solvable. If your credit is bad, then pay off all your bills twice a month. Now, I understand some of those things might seem like I'm oversimplifying how difficult it is to go from having credit card debt and low income to actually making money and not having, let's say, credit card debt that's accruing and lowering your credit score. Look, I get it. Okay, I went from working at Holler—I mean, my my income growth trajectory was extremely slow the first few years. I mean, think about it. Went from Hollister at 16 making what 7.24 an hour to working my butt off at Jamba Juice at eight bucks an hour to getting eight dollars and five cents an hour after a year of work to quitting that because I'm like, really, five cent raise? Okay, bye. Going to Red Robin for nine dollars an hour and basically getting roughly a raise to—I uh, was within about four months to about nine fifty an hour because I. Started Started getting a slight percentage of tips at uh, working the line, uh, and and then my first year of real estate where I made you know 35k. It's like I you know you could work for. 25 bucks an hour right now and, and make more than what I made my first year in real estate for you can make more than I made my first two years in real estate so it's, it's like really really slow but obviously you know once you, you find a way to provide value to society by getting educated more it's, it's easier to get over that lower income hurdle and then be able to pay off your debts and then make sure you're paying your bills twice a month so your credit store score isn't getting hit now you can qualify for real estate now when you qualify for real estate stop trying to buy your dream home right buy something to to start with so uh you know, Victor. In your case, I, I don't know what you started with. I appreciate you bringing that uh, that anecdote over here. But uh, you know, I mean, think about it. If you start with uh, even your own home, and it's a two-bedroom, one-bath house, it's a little fixer-upper or a condo. What a wonderful thing to be able to move into. Get a loan for you know three to five percent down, three and a half percent down FHA, zero percent down VA, three five percent conventional, whatever and own that property, live there, fix it up for a year, learn how to work with your hands a little bit and the value of real estate, and guess what you do the next year? You go do it again. And then when the market starts doing its thing and uh, you slowly start paying down your principal and you're not overexposing yourself to, to uh, high payments that uh, your, your income can't justify, Well, guess what? You slowly approach becoming a millionaire and eventually your tenants just walk you into becoming a millionaire. And then of course, you know, before you know it, you'll be one of those people that has multiple real estate properties and a net worth of millions of dollars. And people will be looking back going, man, how'd that guy get rich? What, you know, why can't I be, right? You like the, it's like, well, they went through the journey. They went through the process. Look at this, look at this, Victor. Victor says, started house hacking a duplex with an FHA loan. See, this is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So What Victor's saying is he put 3.5% down, probably. You could put more down on FHA, but you generally don't. So put 3.5% down, but instead of putting it down on a house, bought a duplex so he could rent the second half and had at least help contribute to some of the mortgage. Now, in some areas, that can be a little bit more expensive. Some markets are very difficult to do that in with a duplex because there are very few duplexes. Or the duplexes are so expensive uh, and, and, and it makes more sense to maybe look at single family and maybe you house hack via renting out rooms, right? If you could get into a two, three, four unit apartment building and you could get in with three and a half percent down and have tenants contribute to your mortgage payment, why would you not do that? <laughs> it's, it's phenomenal. Uh, so, uh, so I mean, there, there's so many opportunities and I, and I think, I, I really believe it. And this is the, what I say. I mean, look, most... I would say my most popular course, and it's the one that, that people share with their friends and say, hey, you gotta buy this as well and join it, is the Stocks and Site course. I think that's because most people find that uh, most accessible, right? Uh, and it's all about building your wealth uh, through, through long-term investing and being tax efficient and uh, fundamental analysis on, on companies. So you're looking at companies that, that are getting you the highest chance of success rather than just sort of speculative momentum bets. Uh, that's stocks and psych. And obviously there's a a lot in there in terms of, again, taxes and investing and so on and so forth. But uh, a, a lot of it also makes reference to how you can utilize investing in stocks to help you get a leg up in investing in real estate, whether that's down payment hacks or income hacks or whatever things you can do to make sure you get, you also get into real estate. And that's obviously the second most popular program that I have, the Zero to Millionaire Real Estate Investing Course. And it's it's really because when I say Zero to Millionaire, I highly believe it. Uh, not only do I believe it, I, I know it's possible. So it's it's, it's fantastic. Um, it's, it's, it's really good. Let me get that bundle coupon. <laughs> well, you get a bundle right on the website, but if you wanted to email for, if, if you needed a special bundle or some guidance, just email kevin at meetkevin.com. But yeah, anyway, seriously, anybody listening, just, even if you just take the inspiration of, okay, you know, I want to get serious about buying real estate. That's good. <laughs> That's a good thing. Very, very, very excited about that. So, uh, I, I hopefully, uh, hope, hopefully, y'all can enjoy that. Atlanta is going through a rough time, down thirty-eight percent of the market. So, something else to remember too is when you're investing in real estate, in, in, at least just my opinion, you want ideally to try to find the lowest risk you can. Find areas with lower poverty rates and higher median incomes. It's better, in my opinion, generally to, to stay away from extremely high cash flow as a red flag because sometimes those markets can be a little bit more volatile. Uh, and uh, I, I don't know specifically about Atlanta, but I've seen in, in some markets. Uh, on, on the East Coast, some parts of, uh, for example, I'll just say it, uh, Atlantic City, Jersey, for example, has like a 38% poverty rate, and, uh, and but 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 the cash flow is really really good, and so you have to be a, it's very difficult to buy blindly there because you really have to know street by street by street, and and that's okay, it just comes with a little bit more risk when you're starting out, something to keep in mind as well. So uh, Redfin data center is showing uh, Atlanta, Georgia, going from about. Uh, okay, so so going from, a, yeah, from 400 down to a low of 340, 340-ish from 400, that puts you down, uh, puts you down 15%. Maybe some markets of yours are about down 30, huh? It's interesting. The Simpsons predicted Ohio. You know, train derailments happen like all the time, right? And it's like, Ohio was, was a little crazy, but train derailments happen all the time, especially in Ohio. These have happened before, these spills. Uh, Not saying they shouldn't happen again and not trying to discredit The Simpsons because they are pretty incredible at predicting the craziest things. And then as Elon always says, fate loves irony and then the craziest things end up happening. But I got to see that. I've I've never seen that episode of The Simpsons. So I'm going to write that down. Thank you for that. (laughs) Uh, If you're in Colorado, look up CHFA, Colorado Housing and Finance Authority. There you go. Probably help you get into a low down payment. Let's see, Uh, CHFA, Colorado Housing and Finance Authority. We'll take a look and see uh, if it's similar to what what I'm saying. I I do caution against investing in homes that are deemed affordable housing, Uh, but if you can take an affordable housing loan and get into a normal neighborhood, uh, that's, I think, generally a fantastic idea. Colorado, statewide approved lender. We offer home purchase loans and grants. Second mortgage loans for down payment or closing costs. Yeah, see, this is perfect. We also sponsor free homebuyer education across the state in the English and Spanish to prepare you for home ownership. See, that's fantastic. Yeah, Gen X here says, uh, uh, no down. That's awesome. That's awesome. Absolutely awesome. That's that's exactly what I'm talking about. So yeah, there, there are generally opportunities like that in, in every area of the country. says so mostly because... The federal government tries to increase home ownership, so they dole out—I uh, mean, multi-thousands of dollars of, of home buyer grants, and the goal really is helping first-time home buyers, Sometimes even first-time home landlords. It's really incredible. Yeah. All right. So I'm in a regular house. Yeah. See, good for you. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. As, as long as as long as you can avoid. Rental restrictions, right? That's important because sometimes some of the grant programs, not all of them, but some of the grant programs won't let you rent out the house after a few years and that's a little risky. Uh, Do airplanes appreciate faster than houses? Generally, no. Generally, airplanes are a depreciating asset. We're in a very bubbly airplane market right now because of massive plane shortages. So there's sort of a temporary surge in plane prices. Do you think people who are buying now are acting a little unreasonable? Uh... Yeah, I mean, uh, not necessarily, mostly because it's so difficult to qualify for a home right now. Uh, the, um, uh, what, what, I, what I would say is you did have a temporary drop in mortgage rates that really encouraged people to get into housing uh, in, in the last uh, few weeks as we potentially thought, oh, that's it. The housing market's bottom. Uh, you know, I I don't think that has occurred just yet, but probably not too terribly far off. Uh, but yeah, I mean, seeing seeing low inventory right now uh, combined with uh, the, you know, at the end of December, you usually get a mass exodus of, of real estate listings. So combine that with the idea that maybe mortgages had bottomed and, and the bottom was in, led to quite a bit of a surge here in January. I, I don't think that's sustainable given how high rates have gone, but uh, we'll see. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> All right, let's see here. Oh, COVID effed up landlords. I mean, I think that's sort of like a one in a hundred year pandemic, where kind of like, oh, COVID was so bad for landlords. I mean, it, I mean, if you think about it, with with how many landlord concessions there were, and landlord stimulus there was, or rental assistance there was, saying COVID effed up landlords is, is in my opinion, not accurate. Uh, some landlords, yeah, maybe, but and um, in, 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 there were so many opportunities to to get, to get help. I, I find that very difficult uh, to say. And and then and that 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 should somehow dissuade people from getting into real estate. Mm, I think is a mistake. Uh, knock on wood, we fortunately didn't have a single missed payment during the COVID era. All right, let's go ahead and talk about, what do we want to talk about today? Uh, we'll talk about, well, let's go ahead and start with uh, a Morgan Stanley piece on individual uh, finance, and, uh, and and sort of what happened yesterday in markets. And uh, then we'll jump into some of the uh, politics and the Cantillon effect and, and more. So we'll jump into this. Okay. standby. by. Well, stocks got wrecked on a Friday. And in this video, we've got to talk about our household's going to drive us right into an earnings recession, and when could they potentially drive us into an earnings recession? So far, with over 72% of S&P 500 companies beating estimates for their earnings, which is slightly less than what you would usually get in terms of upside surprises for earnings, but still not in an environment where we're substantially recessionary, what are we facing in terms of an earnings recession, and when could it actually come? Well, Morgan Stanley has a piece on when we might actually see a bottom in consumers' ability to continue to spend money. After all, after the reports that we've gotten for January, it certainly seems like the consumers are still doing just fine, unfortunately leading to propped up inflation, which is creating fears that, uh uh-oh, the Federal Reserve might have to do a whole lot more. And it's not just individual retail investors who are fearing that. I believe based on stock market activity, it's also institutions we're not yet convinced that inflation is absolutely on a downtrend. Once we have confirmation that inflation is without, uh, without a doubt on a downtrend, I expect a lot of cash that is sitting on the sidelines at hedge funds, pension funds, institutions, and retail investor accounts to start flowing right back into the stock market. We're at some of the lowest allocations from cash to the stock market that we've seen in decades right now, and part of that is due to substantially high bond yield rates. Look, for example, at the two-year or six-month treasury bonds and bills, you're looking at near a 5% yield. You could throw your money into Robinhood or Wealthfront or even SoFi right now and earn anywhere between four and a half to maybe five and a quarter percent in yield just sitting around. Even JP Morgan is picking up the phone, calling people with balances in their bank accounts going, hey, want to lock up your money for six months and we'll give you a CD like those old things that banks give for people who lock up their money and get a yield in return. Yeah, it's crazy right now. So the question is, why would you even bother investing into stocks? The only rational explanation is that you would expect that once inflation provides confirmation that inflation is indeed trending down, all that money on the sidelines will look and say, 5% is nice, but my opportunity cost sitting out on stocks might be 10, 15, 20%. So maybe now's the opportunity to hop in, even if we're slightly off lows, and ride that wave. Of course, the last reports that we've gotten with a hot jobs report that came out the day after the Federal Reserve meeting with a lot of folks putting on the tinfoil hat saying, "Mm "Mm-hmm, sure, y'all scheduled the Fed meeting for a day after (laughs) the labor report. And in fairness, usually the Fed has their Fed meeting a week prior. It's the third week of January. They usually have it here. They had it in the last week of January, which rolled into February 1st. Uh, thanks to the calendar of the Fed generally holding this meeting on a Tuesday and then press conference on Wednesday. Uh, And then, of course, right after that, we got a CPI report that was hotter uh, than expected with hotter revisions from the prior month. We got a producer price index report with hotter than expected results and hotter revisions from the prior month. We got a retail sales report that gave us a hotter than expected report with hotter than expected revisions. And then just yesterday, we got a PCE, which is the Fed's preferred inflation gauge for January, hotter than expected PCE report, and hotter with more revisions. All this while you've got multiple credit card companies suggesting, boy, it just seems like people are still spending money. So when does that spending go away? And is it possible that this inflation is just going to continue? Well, let's take a look at what Morgan Stanley suggests is going on with individual household balance sheets, and maybe when those excess savings will go away. Keep in mind, right before we look at this household uh, report from Morgan Stanley, there are really two trains of thought right now. One is that inflation is transitory. And yeah, we might have some volatile January data thanks to massive seasonal adjustments or just the January effect of going from a cold December to a warm, unseasonably warm January, leading potentially to more spring-style sales in January and a boost in temporary inflation. That is sort of the transitory argument. And then, of course, there's the argument that, well... The numbers we had in the last three months of 2022 were all outliers. Now we're facing slowing disinflation and we're probably going right back to the races with inflation. So, what says Morgan Stanley? Well, of course, Morgan Stanley says, use that Investor Day a flash a sale link down below for the programs on Building Your Wealth. You get lifetime access to all of the new content that's added. All the new content I added now or add now is done on our Blackboard, which is really phenomenal for uh, teaching. People are really enjoying it and loving it. And of course, we do our daily course member live streams, which you get lifetime access to if you join. So check that all out, link down below. So what do we have here? Morgan Stanley telling us, Households have been using their excess savings. Savings level now, un, uh, however, now undershooting trend. Okay, this is this is the usual thing that I talk about where I get a little frustrated when people only look at the savings rate because excess savings are still so positive after the pandemic. But just so you can visualize the savings rate, some of y'all were asking that we visualize the savings rate. This is where you can visualize the savings rate. You can see here we sit roughly at the beginning of 2023, uh, and that savings rate bottomed roughly around October, September of 2022. That savings rate is returning slightly to trend Uh, However, we still sit below trend on that savings rate. You can see obviously during the COVID bubble, we had a massive increase in the savings rate and generally we match trend, right? After all, that's why it's called trend. We kind of make the trend and then the trend line comes afterwards. But anyway, right now we are still substantially below that trend line. Uh, We're approaching that trend line though. uh, We're expected to approach that trend line uh, by about 2024. See, if I draw this maybe to Q1 24. Let's see. Let's draw a line up to that. Yeah, I'd say that's about Q1, 2024. Still got a little bit of work to do. Maybe by Q2, Q3, 2024, you actually get to trend again on the savings rate. But right now where we sit, we're still quite a bit below trend on the savings rate. Generally, the personal savings rate sitting somewhere around 5 to 7%. Us right now sitting at about 3.4%. So this is where a lot of folks are concerned. Hey, how can the consumers hold up, right? Well, graphically, here's when we expect maybe we could see a bottom in earnings, right? So first, uh, and we're gonna align excess savings to try to figure that out because we assume that if the savings rate is below trend, then people right now are still able to spend money to sort of avoid a recession. But people are only able to essentially spend money to the point where they have excess savings or excess available debt, right? There are two ways you can continue to spend money when your income goes away, and that's either debt or money that you have saved up. And if we first start by aligning where we sit right now, I'm going to draw a red line going up roughly to where we sit right now. And when we look at cumulative excess savings, uh, this chart here suggests we're still sitting uh, at levels of somewhere around uh, 2000000000 billion. I'm sorry, this is $2 Trillion dollars of excess savings. The chart is provided in billions, and uh, we are uh, we're looking at thousands of billions, which are trillions. Anyway, we're still sitting at quite a bit a uh, high level of excess savings. It doesn't really matter so much how much that number is, though. I think what matters more, and what is more telling, is where's the inflection point? Where do we go potentially? And this is Morgan Stanley's estimate from excess savings to a deficit. Of excess savings. So a negative excess savings means you have less money than you had before the pandemic, right? And so where does the chart go negative? Well, in my opinion, based on the sort of analyzing and sort of drawing a line on this chart, it looks to me like we don't go negative in excess savings until May of 2024. Now that's pretty remarkable. That really suggests that consumers have roughly another 14 to 15 months of excess savings, which is really interesting because if you look at the inversion of the three month, 10 year yield curve, which usually projects a recession within the next six to 18 months, it's worth noting that we've already been inverted for about seven to eight months. So if we take that off the inverted yield curve, we're looking at maybe about 10 to 11 months to go that potential recession signal of of the latest, the inverted yield curve would generally signal a recession, somewhat aligns with the beginning of 2024, which is pretty close to aligning with when Morgan Stanley thinks we're going to go to negative excess savings. So maybe the inverted yield curve is approximately saying Q1 of 2024 for a recession. Excess savings are roughly saying Q2. 2 of 2024. Now, that's really interesting because it suggests that, uh uh-oh, well, if we go into a recession, that could mean the most pain is still ahead of us, right? Well, that's maybe something where we have to look at history a little bit and think about this. So uh, we'll look at history and we'll we'll make some sort of uh, conclusions in terms of what we think in terms of stock market pricing. So First of all, let's look a little bit historically. So if we look at the S&P 500, at least as of the last recession, uh, well, that goes back to, to, uh, I can't really get a chart going back further. I'd like to get one going back further. The COVID pandemic was a little bit of an outlier. I'd like to get uh, the S&P 500 going back a little bit more. So let's go ahead and look at this together here. Let's see if we can get the S&P 500 historical on St. Louis Fed uh, or the Fred website. This is a fantastic way uh, to see uh, or to visualize what uh, what valuations for stocks are doing going back uh, over time, uh, oftentimes able to overlay this with recessions. But right now we're having a little bit of trouble getting that graph. So let's just Google it. Say, uh, let's go. Let's just go with S and P 500 uh, over time with recession chart. So that way we can kind of visualize this. Okay, let's try what Yardini has for us. S&P 500 with recessionary cycles. There we go. Okay, that's exactly what we're looking for. Sorry for the delay there. All right, so what's interesting here is recessions, when we zoom in, we see these sort of bluish lines here. Oftentimes we go back to recessionary eras. We'll see that recessions align potentially, at least in the last crisis. But it looks like the recession almost aligned with the, with the start of the recession aligned with the top of the market. And we know that the recession and stock market bottomed in about February of 2009, which is interesting because it potentially suggests, uh-oh, is historically, this start of a recession, really, where stocks bottom out. And this is something where Goldman Sachs told us about three weeks ago, that recessions are usually, when res- recessions start, they usually start the bottoming process for stocks. And that's because when we align the start of recessions with when we have a bottom of an earnings cycle, we could see that uh, the stock market usually bottoms out about six to nine months before the bottom in earnings. So that's interesting because if we go back to 2009, potentially because this recessionary period over here lasted uh, really about two years, It's possible that we bottomed out in earnings somewhere around the end of 2008, and we didn't actually hit our stock market bottom until the Federal Reserve broke something in February of 2002. And so that makes us wonder today, okay, well, if earnings potentially are going to be at a bottom in, well, October of 2022, then maybe we've already hit a bottom in the stock market, right? Although, what if Earnings don't actually hit a bottom until we inflect to negative in excess savings. Well, that would align more with Q1 of 2024, which potentially suggests maybe the bottom is still ahead of us, right? If the recession is maybe, and, and the bottom of earnings is the first part of 2024, oops, let's actually go ahead and show the screen there. There we go. Bottom of 2024, does that potentially forecast a bottom of the stock market and a leg lower still coming before the worst gets priced in. And this is really where you have two trains of thought. You have the historical argument that, yeah, look, we aren't going to hit bottom until uh, in the stock market until we actually price in that bottom of earnings. And that bottom of earnings, if it wasn't Q4 2022, where people are still spending through this earnings quote unquote recession, then maybe the worst is still to come. So this is where there are really two trains of thought that you have to evaluate, okay, what works best for your situation? What do you believe? Because I believe there are two trains of thought. Train of thought number one is if we're going to have a bottom in earnings in Q1, Q2, bottom of of 2024, bottom of uh, EPS, then you're probably looking at a bottom in the stock market of somewhere around Q3, to Q4, 23. That probably aligns with another large leg lower. And it probably also aligns with sticky inflation, right? Because if we have sticky inflation, we're going to see that terminal rate from the Federal Reserve likely move from where we sit right now, which is about 5.43% when I checked this morning. To potentially a rising of six to maybe even six point five percent. Some even say seven percent as a terminal rate. This is one scenario where, when we align all uh, this this sort of historical data, which is provided by Goldman Sachs, and of course we can see this chart-wise as well, that generally the stock market bottoms about six to nine months before the bottom in earnings. And the beginning of a recession can often uh, start the bottoming process. So that means stocks eventually pull you out of a recession. So you don't generally want to invest in stocks at the sort of technical end of a recession, right? Then you can almost sort of align this here. See, let's draw this graphically because there's a lot to align. Uh, so if we go over here and we suggest that a recession might be over by Q324, let's say. Uh, let's call it recession- over, Well, and then we have a stock market that pulls us out of a recession, and maybe that recession begins somewhere in Q4, 23, where earnings basically hit rock bottom and that recession begins, then potentially that stock market bottom sits somewhere over here between Q4 and maybe Q1, 2024, right? If we look at our crystal ball, maybe that's what we're looking at. 2024. That's the thesis of sticky inflation aligning with excess savings are gone. And that is provided, obviously, by Morgan Stanley because that's what we're looking at here. So again, if you want to see that here, when do we go to negative excess savings where consumers can no longer spend through a recession? Well, that's potentially, uh, you know, Q3, Q4, uh, or or sorry, rather, uh, bottom of of people's ability to spend, right, Uh, potentially aligns with Q4, Q1, Q2, 2023 to 2024, and when does that align with the bottom uh, of, uh, of potentially earnings? Well, potentially that, Q4 to Q2 as well, and then according to Goldman Sachs, bottom of the stock market might be six months before that. So, going back to this drawing over here, that might say bottom is somewhere Q4, 2023. I would say probably out to, yeah, Q1 2024 in this scenario. Because even if earnings bottom in Q3, Q2, Q3 with that excess savings, right? Q2, Q3 bottom in earnings over here, you've got that six to nine month rule that aligns your bottom a little bit earlier there, which aligns with the inverted yield curve, right? This is what the 310 is telling you. So, bottom line, scenario number one suggests sticky inflation, higher terminal yield. When do earnings potentially bottom and how much before uh, earnings bottom does the stock market tend to bottom? That's your scenario one, where a lot of bears right now are saying, you've got Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson, you've got Goldman Sachs, you've got JP Morgan. The, The bear position is, hey, look, we've still got another big leg lower. And that could potentially align with that recessionary dynamic we're seeing now where uh oh yeah maybe you do still have another leg lower and maybe that's what you want to be prepared for and that's roughly what the timing would look like when we look at negative excess savings and also looking at q4 2022 is basically not that bad like sorry not there yet right that's scenario number one scenario number two is this idea that okay well maybe maybe that bear case could play out but maybe inflation proves itself as declining in the months of february remember these are february reports which come out a month later so we would get these reports in march april may and those reports would be for feb march and april maybe these inflation reports end up proving hey don't worry the january data was an anomaly and if the january data was an anomaly then you know what? Maybe inflation will prove to be transitory. We top out at 5.25%. We level off and the stock market starts pricing in. All right, the bottom is behind us. We could continue to spend money. And by the time we actually get to where we get to negative excess savings, what potentially helps refill the savings pot? Well, this is where in the favor of the bulls in scenario two, you look over here at your savings rate rebounding roughly at the beginning of 2024, second quarter of 2024, to where you could then, even though you've depleted all your excess savings, you're going right back to spending the money that you're making. That's a thesis. Both the bears and the bulls have an argument here. The bear argument actually calls for a substantial amount of patience, right? Think about the bear argument. The bears right now are saying, look, we're not going to hit that earnings bottom probably until Q2, 2024. We got a long way to go. That means the reset, the bottom of the market might not be until Q4, 2023 to Q1, 2024. And, uh, and that essentially also aligns with the three-month, 10-year treasury. So you get alignment with the inverted yield curve, negative excess savings, a bottom in EPS, and there's your bear case. Whereas your bull case is, no, no, the January data is an anomaly. January is an (laughs) anomaly. You can't spell that at 5 a.m. January is an anomaly. And don't worry, Feb, March, and April data will be great. And we'll be back to the moon. Okay. (laughs) Those are your two theses and your two scenarios. Uh, And I think ultimately, uh, there's probably a case for making a balanced portfolio allocation here where you increase a higher level of, uh, of, of your savings so that way you're prepared in the event we do go through another layoff cycle, which is entirely possible. No matter what job you have, it is entirely possible to get laid off. And that's unfortunate, right? It's very difficult right now, especially on small businesses to survive. I was just talking to a commercial uh, property manager about uh, which divisions in the commercial real estate space they're anecdotally seeing as most pained. And it's small Mom and pop retail stores, very difficult to get new business formation right now taking leases, at least uh, yesterday when I was in the uh, Vegas market to explore uh, uh, real estate there, where the most pain seems to be. Medical real estate obviously doing well, but hey, you could still have pain in medical real estate if rents go down, cap rates go down, because you're seeing office buildings or other spaces that could become medical spaces drive those rents down. So uh, a lot of various pain. It seems like uh, lower income and smaller businesses likely to get hit hardest the most, though that doesn't mean larger companies aren't going to go through their layoff cycles. As we already know, they very well are. Whilst Fargo laying off lenders, almost all of the large banks, whether it's Goldman, JP Morgan, layoffs in multiple different departments from financial advising to trading to consulting, consulting's getting hit, tech's getting hit. I would guess small businesses right now are potentially still jaded about having a hard time hiring. And so there's this idea that some of that employee hoarding is going on. But what if that that employee hoarding ends up turning into employee paper handing in this bear case? right? Employee paper handing could actually align with the bear case. I hate to say it because obviously I lean more bullish. That's my bias. But the more, you know, I study the bear case, the more I realize, yeah, there's, there is a very much valid argument. And we'll know within the next few months, which scenario is more likely to play off. We can't just keep trying to explain away high inflation as an anomaly. The January reports, fair game, massive seasonal adjustments, uh, and massive, uh, a massive potential for anomaly with higher energy costs in January compared to December. So pushes up your month over month uh, costs, both core and non-core, thanks to the flow through of higher energy costs, uh, but also uh, going into a much seasonably warmer, warmer January, right? That's that's the way you could try to explain that away. But seriously, the, the paper handing of the hoarding of employees. So let's write that out. Paper handing of employee hoarding. That's not going to happen in the first quarter of 2023. First quarter of 2023... People still have hopium. People still have this belief that it's okay. Let's use our excess savings. Let's get through this recession. Let's just keep trying to expand the business and maybe take on a little bit more risk to expand the business once we once we bottom out. And the reality is that's not a bad strategy if we end up having great reports in Feb, March and April. If we have great inflation reports Feb, March and April and you were a small business that invested heavily at the end of 2022, you're going to get massively rewarded going into a bull cycle with more employees, more efficiency, and more capability of of selling your goods and services. However, if you go into the bear cycle and you spend money on yourself or your business or whatever going into higher debt, well, now all of a sudden you're going to have those higher debt payments for longer. You're not going to be able to refinance your home or your property or, or your rental property or business as quickly as you thought your credit lines for your business or your properties are more expensive. Now, all of a sudden, you potentially actually have to start paper-handing your employees because even though you thought you could hold on to everyone, now, all of a sudden, you're like, crap, I actually can't. That's the bear case. That's the bear case. And so that that's really going to be a personal decision for you in terms of what you want to hedge for. But boy, I mean, I, I, I mean, some people come to me and they say, Kevin, what do you think about my situation? I'm like 20% in margin right now because I think we've bottomed out. And I'm like, well, that's fantastic if you're a scenario number two. That's miserable if you're a scenario number one. You know, even if you're all in right now, but you're not in margin, okay, great, yeah, scenario number one's going to hurt, but at least it won't take you out, uh, right? And you just have to basically diamond in hand. Uh, yeah. <laughs> However, if, if you're leveraged and you're going into a scenario number one, it's going to suck. And that's the case for still having some cash, in my opinion, you know, whether that's 10, 15, 20%, whatever, that's roughly what I've been looking at in terms of uh, allocations now, then, uh, then at least you have a little bit of insulation going into the scenario number one. So uh, that's, that I think is very, very important and, and, and hopefully brings together some of the madness that's happening. Uh, look, there is still there is still an argument for rapid disinflation occurring I mean, look, for example, at uh, at what's happening with, with uh, vehicle inventory and, and new vehicles. I mean, uh, you're, you're getting smashed. Morgan Stanley talks specifically about that. Let's go a little bit further here. Uh, let's go through some more of these char- charts. Here we go. Look at this. Uh, motor vehicle spending weaker than other durable goods due to a 5 million unit supply glut. Notice, uh, I, I wrote this here in red, but GM paused production to optimize inventory, according to Detroit News. Uh, the shutdown should be lasting two weeks in light uh, in, 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 due to light-duty um, truck inventory being so high that they're just pausing production completely because there's so many new vehicles right now. And we're potentially expecting uh, tighter land, loan standards destroying demand for lower-income vehicles, but also a glut of inventory leading to rapid disinflation. That's your Kathy Woodian argument, right? Now, we've had some signs that used car prices popped in November and December, which is a little bit of a concern. These charts right here showing you the CPI metric for used vehicles and new vehicles. Uh, and, and so uh, th- there is an argument that, hey, you know, rapid disinflation is coming. But the counter right away to that is, well, we've actually still seen household wealth hold up pretty dang well, mostly because a lot of household wealth is in, in real estate. And this is why I suggest when people want to start becoming a millionaire, the easiest way to do it is real estate. That's why I have a course called Zero to Millionaire Real Estate Investing, link down below. Got a flash sale going on. Anyway, you look at the decline in household net worth, and it's nominal. I mean, here's a chart on the right side that goes all the way back to the 90s. And you can see net worth as a percentage of disposable income has never been as high as it is now. If for a moment I take, for example, I'll take a white eraser here, sort of. And I'll just draw over the top of this chart to get rid of the fact that right now we're a little bit lower than the peak, right? But I just want you to compare where we now, there we go. Okay, so now compare the chart to where we are now. We're substantially higher than anywhere we've been during the pandemic in 17 and 14 and 2006 and in the 90s substantially higher net worth as a percentage of disposable income today. Even though that's come down in 2022, it's still so much higher and that's helping support some of this excess spending. And uh, while, yeah, we're starting to see an inflection point in wage growth, which is good, it's still incredibly high. We haven't seen some of these uh, inflation levels for job stayers since before the dot-com bubble. We've never seen this high of uh, wage inflation for job switchers. Uh, and, uh, and and yeah, hopefully we get rapid disinflation of goods. When is that actually going to show up in services? Well, what if it takes another year, right? Well, then you reiterate the bear case. If it takes another year to get rid of the sticky inflation, you're just reiterating the bear case, scenario number one over here, which uh, aligns really with sticky inflation. Actually, I already wrote that there on the left. The bear case aligns with sticky inflation. So you actually don't have In in the long term, bears and bulls who are are too terribly different, right? I think that a a lot of bears and and bulls agree that, look, in the longer term, you don't want to bet against America, right? But that that next leg down seems to be the case that individuals make as a bear versus the bulls. And there's data supporting arguments on both sides. Uh, Although leading indicators, in my opinion, lean heavily towards the bull case via what we're seeing in earnings calls. Uh, it's unclear if the Federal Reserve is going to uh, align with what we're seeing as a leading indicator in earnings calls of rapid disinflation rapid availability of workers I should say uh, supply chains uh, normalizing substantially and rapidly and really a lack of pricing power uh, any lingering or or should I say the ability to raise prices since pricing power is really the ability to raise or lower prices while still maintaining margins the lack of uh, sort of inelastic or or demand elasticity, right? So, uh, back in the day, uh, and like, you know, beginning of 2021, uh, demand was, was almost, uh, I should say perfectly inelastic. In other words, you could raise the price as much as you wanted and people were still buying. And now you're seeing a return to demand elasticity, which is basically saying, eh, you raise the price. I stop buying, right? My demand becomes flexible as opposed to perfectly inflexible. Uh, anyway, so, TBD, but this is the bear bull case, uh, and uh, which side I think will be heavily—I mean, we know it'll be heavily dictated by what happens in these February, March, April reports. Uh, the January is—is—is—I mean, the bears are cheering January, and if we get a bad Feb, March, April report, the bears will probably end up being right. <laughs> so, fingers crossed. Uh, it, it, you know, for for uh, a bullish Feb, March, April, we shall see. <laughs> it'll be very, very interesting all right so that's our bull case case uh, hopefully that was uh, detailed and insightful for y'all so we'll call that yeah uh, bull case Let's see what kind of questions y'all have before we jump into some of the other topics here uh, I make 80k as an order selector I don't even know what that means Javier what is an order selector what do you, what do, you do do you pick which button to press the green button or the red button uh, you select Oh, we're going to use Alibaba or Amazon. Oh. How does all of this impact the Dixie? Well, if you have sticky inflation, you have higher yields for longer and the dollar will, will could, could make new highs. If you do experience disinflation, the Dixie will plummet because your higher yields will disappear and uh, and, and people will move from investing in bonds which even means foreigners demanding dollars to invest in bonds, uh, investing in, in uh, basically the Dixie less because you need to buy the Dixie to buy buy U.S. bonds. Uh, and and uh, the, the favor for, will, will move towards foreign bonds uh, or foreign investments, which means less demand on the Dixie, which means down Dixie. So basically, uh, in the bear case, Dixie go up. Bull case, Dixie go down in the two scenarios we just talked about. Good question. Very good question. Can you comment on treasury bills? Big opportunity cost, but yeah, they're fantastic. The only reason I think it makes sense to be in treasuries, uh, in the market where it is right now, is if if you're either sitting in cash and you're just never going to buy stocks with them, uh, or you have the cash to buy real estate. Look, if you're going to use the cash to buy real estate, sit on the sidelines, wait for the real estate market to confirm a bottom and then go buy real estate. Uh, but, uh, you know, for example, that's what we're doing with house hack. So for house hack, sitting in treasuries is fantastic. Uh, it's even safer than sitting in, in, you know, a broker account because treasury bills much more guaranteed than FDIC insurance at 500 K, especially if you have much more than that. Um, so that's phenomenal if you're waiting to buy real estate, but yeah, if, if if you want to, if you are just an individual Um, you've got to evaluate the opportunity cost in the stock market based on scenario one and two we just talked about. Yeah, can you explain the NVIDIA valuation versus Tesla? Um, Well, when you look at evaluations for companies, I'll give you just a quick example. I'll pull it for you. Let me get the the numbers for you. So what we generally evaluate is earnings per share growth uh, as a peg ratio. That's what I like to do uh now, let's see here let's go i'll get you eps on nvidia here Stand by. okay and this is this is these are the kind of questions we generally answer in the course member live streams but uh give to give you an example so nvidia is sitting at uh, hopefully a 25% eps growth it should be somewhere around 2 based on my deep dive fundy analysis that i did last time but anyway it's selling for about 232 86 divided by 444 on eps Uh, Yeah, so you're sitting at a price-to-earnings ratio at NVIDIA of about 52.5 with growth at about 25. So you're trading for a peg ratio of about 2 right now, whereas I think Tesla's closer to about a peg ratio of 1 right now, which does make Tesla more attractive than NVIDIA. So if I go to Tesla's forecast, you're sitting at about 4 on EPS, 196, divided by 4 puts you at about uh, 49 for a forward uh, PE ratio in 2023. Uh, and then if you take a growth rate, you know, some say 50%. I think that's pretty unreasonable. The bear case seems to be about 38%. Well, I mean, the real bear case is lower. that It's probably more like 30%. Tesla's worst case right now seems to be estimated about 30, uh, 38% growth, EPS growth. So let's divide that by 38. It puts a set of peg ratio of about 1.3 on Tesla. So I, I I prefer so for me as sort of a you know a, a growth investor uh, who's looking at uh, long-term pricing power plays over the next decade I would rather put more dollars into Tesla at today's valuation than Nvidia. That's potentially because Nvidia was propped up quite a bit here on on some of the AI talk, uh, and I worry that that might play out a little bit like the metaverse days where it's like ooh metaverse is so fantastic and, and everybody's so excited about AI so they buy Nvidia or whatever. Uh, and, and, and that ends up uh, sort of having a little bit of an exit and, and you end up with, what? Another opportunity by NVIDIA at a lower price, right? <laughs> it's possible. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's that's how I would sort of look at that. Uh, of course, a value investor wouldn't look at it that way. They'd look at a multiple for book and, and they don't really care so much about earnings growth. Uh, Why don't I ever talk about the Canadian real estate market, Cause it's just so tiny, it's so tiny. Nobody, nobody lives in Canada. Is, is, is Canada even an economy? Just kidding. No, I love Canada. I've got family in Canada. Uh, they're, you know, uh, we 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 play with loonies and toonies all the time. <laughs> yeah, eh? uh, I, it's true. I, I do love Canada. I would actually consider investing in Canada. The problem is now you'd have to you'd have to create a Canadian corporation to do it because they basically banned foreign real estate investors. But, uh, yeah, as long as you're okay with, with a little bit cooler winters, you know, you're not getting, like, closer to the equator kind of weather. Uh, I think there's some phenomenal opportunities in Canada because Canada is a beautiful place. You've got smart people. you got strong business. Uh, you've, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's phenomenal in, in many ways. And fantastic uh, cities with with excellent suburbs that you can invest in as long-term rentals. You just basically have to become a local corporation to do that, which is fine. It just it's just more hoops and hurdles. What what really they're trying to do is prevent uh, you know foreigners, uh, dare I say, highly or more more likely uh, to be Asian, uh, parking cash uh, in Canadian real estate as as an uh, you know as a safety net. You actually had that, have still today have that happening in Miami. You know, you get people from uh, Colombia, Venezuela, uh, you know, c- Cuba, and, and they park cash in Miami. Uh, because and, and it could be vacant real estate, but they see vacant real estate as safer as their, than their own currency. It's actually kind of your bull case, by the way, for Bitcoin as well. It's like, why go buy vacant real estate in, in Miami that you have to maintain when you could just get the same benefit potentially out of Bitcoin? So you have, you have a lot of... Uh, uh, foreign, foreign desire, uh, for, for, uh, Bitcoin. Okay. So, so Robert, what I just said about stopping foreigners has nothing to do with immigration. It's Justin Trudeau's government is, is, uh, basically passing a rule banning the foreign investment into real estate by foreign citizens, right? That's different from, from having anything to do with immigration. All right, what else? What else we got to talk about? Any thoughts on Tesla Investor Day? Heck yeah, man. We got a $25,000 car coming up. No, I don't. Watch my video yesterday. Uh, it was titled Tesla is Bankrupting the Competition. And uh, some people were very upset about my title because they thought the title Tesla is Bankrupting implies Tesla is going bankrupt. I'm like, no, Tesla's bankrupting the competition, obviously. And uh, if you watch the video, you get my uh, Investor Day preview, and I think it's very insightful. So you can take a look at that. You know what I might do is, just for the the title reading weenies, uh, and even if you're just a title reading weenie, hopefully hopefully you actually watch the video. I will. Um, let me see if I I'll change the title. Let's 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 see here. Uh, yeah, I'll I'll throw in uh, a competition. There you go. Investor day preview. All right. We'll make everyone happy. Investor day preview. <laughs> there we go. Now you can check that out and, and, uh, and the the, the title could be a little bit more clear. <laughs> there you go. But, um, yeah, that, that goes through my, my thesis on 25k. JC says, remember when Kevin was going to quit YouTube? No, because if you actually go back and watch that video, I said I was going to uh, take a two-week break and come back. But I think what you're saying is, remember all the people who only read the title and thought that and didn't watch the video. So I actually appreciate you bringing that up, Jay. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. Yeah, 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 see? <laughs> Gas Man says, I like the old title better. I know, me too. <laughs> People get so sensitive about titles, it's funny. But that's okay. That's all right. My goal is to provide really good value every single day. And that's my job. So that's what I'll continue doing. Okay. so we have uh, now, uh, let's go ahead and jump into, oh, this was quite interesting. I'd like to play this because it was so sad. So I'm going to go ahead and play this. Hold on a sec. And then we'll go ahead and react to it as well. Uh, all right. Stand by while this pulls up. It's taking a second to load. All right. This was pretty incredible. And, uh, oh, wow. It's, it's getting a lot more views already on Twitter. Someone else posted this on Twitter. Uh, Seth, Seth Dillon. Oh, I wonder if he's related to that attorney. Anyway, uh, the, um, yeah, okay. Let's go ahead and pull this video up and we'll talk about it. Weekends are always so much more chill. All right. Let's hop in here. Stand by. Now we've got to react to what is a remarkable piece by a high school student essentially slamming his school board for focusing on race and race-based education, rather than an education that should be based on merit, rather than the color of our skin. Now, I find some interesting points in this and an interesting comparison to, for example, the idea, and I want you to think about this as we go through the video, to the idea of who's allowed to run for president in the United States. Think about this for a moment. Skin color-based discrimination is bad and illegal, of course but who could run for president is in some way similar. Now, I don't wanna get a lot of angry folks. I know that's a little triggering, so I'm gonna walk back a little bit on that and say, look, I'm not suggesting talking about who can run for president has anything to do with the hell that other races have gone through, including redlining in real estate and building wealth through real estate or the lack of financial education that's provided in poor, more heavily minority-based districts. It is. There is so much work that needs to be done in America. But it's very interesting because when you listen to this person's argument, I want you to think about their argument in context of, if somebody is uh, born in another country, they don't choose where they're born just like they don't choose their race. Yet that is still a legal way that the constitution legally today says, oh no, 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 we can still discriminate based on where you're born. And now this particular individual's argument it's very interesting, and I'd like to play it, and we'll add some commentary here. Uh, yeah, and the reason I bring up uh, the, the race idea is, just for example, not that I actually expect Elon Musk would ever run for president, uh, but somebody uh, like Elon Musk, of course, a lot of Democrats would not like that, uh, Republicans might like that, it seems to be mostly a rational person who likes to get things done, uh, it, you know, can't run for president because he was born in South Africa. But anyway, let's listen to this uh, video here because it's phenomenal. I might pause for some commentary, but I, th- I think it's a, a really interesting piece and it's worth talking about. Uh, in, on my channel, I'm a big fan of us being able to have an open dialogue and talk about even hard things. So that's what we'll do here. Let's go ahead and jump into this.
1: Hi, my name is Brett.
0: Oh, darn it, I've got to change the audio source. Why does this happen to me? <laughs> Stand by, just one second. There we go, we just missed the hi. Brad Taylor,
1: and I just finished my freshman year at RHS. Um, I've been a part of District 196 schools now for 10 years, and I'm going to give you a glimpse today of what's actually going on inside these schools. Um, Despite the board's attempt to deny it, District 196 schools are quickly becoming a place where promoting activism is actually more important than promoting education. I'll I'll take you back to my first day at RHS this fall. The principal came out and gave us a heartfelt speech about equality and standing together. Um, He began to list countless races, such as Latino, Asian, expressing how much they matter and how important they are. But never once did he mention a race or identity that reflects me, or half the kids that were in the class. Now, members of the board, I know you haven't been to school in a while. And I know most of the people, I know none of you or most of you don't have any kids left in the school district. Um, But you must admit how uncomfortable it will be to be characterized just by your skin color on the first day of school and be thought that you were wrong just because of your skin color. So I'll never forget the look one of my friends gave me from across the room as we were sitting there listening to this blatant bias being expressed in the so-called equity statement by the leader of our school. To be clear, I don't need you to tell me that I matter, but hearing the condolences given to other races and leaving just one race out, it inevitably you'll start to feel like you've done something wrong. And in our principal's attempt to unify us, he instead created unwarranted boundaries and barriers between his students, pitting us against each other based on characteristics that we can't control. In another separate instance, I was told that writing All Lives Matter on the whiteboard was political and could be seen as offensive. When I questioned the teacher after class, she told me that she didn't have an answer, and she just had to erase it, and it was quickly erased. There are political signs all over RHS, specific about specific races that matter, specific sexual orientations that matter, and specific perspectives that matter. But when I questioned the RHS administration about how these signs were political, they told me that they were supporting human rights. So when I questioned why the equity statement couldn't represent all students, they told me that to even ask that question was outlandish and offensive. And when I asked why that was, they told me, quote, whites have a pretty good situation right now, unquote. So is that not racism, disregarding my question merely because of the color of my skin? To be honest, after enduring a year of the people in charge telling me that I'm a racist and I'm privileged and pointing out our irreversible differences, I've never noticed race more. And it's becoming the first thing I notice when I meet someone, which has never before been the case. RHS administration confidently told me that RHS students and staff are happy with their equity statement. But from my experience in talking with other students, this is not the case. I know many kids who disagree with their teachers, but they 're too scared to stand up because they 're worried that their grades will be docked and their learning experience will be affected. <laughs> My honor's government teacher i 'm not going to say his name, but he 's mentioned that Democrats care more about all people while Republicans only care about themselves and he 's also inferred to us that socialism is better than democracy. He even had a statue he had a statue of a socialist leader in his classroom um, I have been I've been told by a lot of kids that they just stay silent and adjust their schoolwork to reflect an acceptable opinion to secure a good grade. I've been approached by multiple teachers who have told me in private that they just want to say that they agree with me and they support me standing up, but they can't it in front of the class for fear of being disciplined by the administration in some way or losing their jobs. There is clearly only one way to think in this district, and that is that they are teaching their kids to shut up if they don't agree. Now, members of the board, I want you to take a good look at yourselves in the mirror tonight and ask, are you really standing up for the equality of all people, or are you just pushing a damaging political ideology um, on, on our students? A fellow co-worker at my job, who by the way is of color, discreetly told me that the school seemed to be pushing a very leftist agenda in class. This proved that not everyone is happy with your school, and not everyone who isn't happy is white. Now, due to all these instances I've mentioned and many more that I can't fit in this five-minute speech, I've decided to leave this district and continue school on a private Christian school online. And, and there will be sacrifices, and I will not get to walk in the graduation ceremony or attend milestones at RHS, but I will be able to learn in an environment that is not intent on punishing me daily for my skin color and political views. Now, regardless of how you take my speech, whether you just shrug it off as malarkey or Fox News talking points, I encourage you to think about it because someday I'm going to be a leader. I may be the president, a governor, or just a professional golfer, but I will never stop believing that everybody has value no matter their skin color or personal beliefs. And it's a shame that you're not gonna be able to say that I was an alumni of RHS in District 196. Thank you. (laughs) Boy, I'd hate to be on that board. <laughs> I also would probably
0: never be on any board because I think boards suck. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> like, if you're on a board, I, I couldn't stand it. It's, maybe it's just not my personality. But anyway, yeah, look, I mean, these are important things to think about, right? You you can't pick your skin color. You can't change that, right? You, you, you can't empathize with somebody of a different skin color. You could try to sympathize, but that's the best you can do. You know, if you're black and I'm white, I I can't empathize with you. The best I could do is sympathize. That's it, that's that's definitionally the best thing you can do. Uh, you can't also can't pick where you're born. You know, if you're born in America and you weren't born with an accent, uh, which I had an accent until about first grade, for example, because I was born in Germany, uh, I can't change that. And, and how did that potentially affect someone as a child? I don't know. I'm not trying to at all make a, c- a comparison that an accent is like a skin color. I'm just saying you have no control over that, right? You have no control over your skin color. You can't pick where you're born. Uh, to some degree, you can't even pick your health, right? Obviously, to some degree, you can. You could exercise and try to give yourself the best odds on health uh, and, and eat healthy foods, but but to some degrees, you with your health is genetically what it is, right? So, what you can do is very different from what you can't do. In my opinion, here's what you can do. You can work to have a phenomenal work ethic. You can encourage a strong work ethic. You can encourage and actually perform honestly, and provide transparency in what you're doing, or uh, do what you say you're going to do, right? Your word is as good as gold. You can do the right thing even when nobody's looking, and make sure that even if you can get away with doing something where you make more money, you choose to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. That's eudaimonia, living the good life, the Aristelian mean, doing the right thing. You can also get educated. Rather than being jaded at the world that we live in, whether it's your opinion of the corrupt media or the corrupt monetary system or corrupt politicians or even as far as thinking everyone on YouTube is a scam. Whatever. You can have the jaded point of view of life and, ah, well, the cards I was dealt suck and everybody else is a scam. Or you could try to improve. See, one of the biggest differences unfortunately, between success and, uh, crime and poverty, is education. But that's difficult because, unfortunately, people, more often Black and Hispanic, who live in poorer areas, where there's a phenomenon known as the concentration of poverty. The poorer an area gets, the more people move there because it's cheaper, but the cheaper it gets, the more people move there, the worse services are. Schools, police, fire, everything, right? Crimes higher, it's harder to, to, to actually succeed, right? So, so you have this massive situate problem where unfortunately, yeah, there are uh, races that are more likely to be in poorer areas and have worse outcomes. That's very true. And it's sad, it shouldn't be that way. And that's where we need a government that can actually focus on providing financial education and more education, not less education. The fact that you've got a city in California, Culver City High School, removing honors classes is the complete opposite of what should be done. We should have more education and more opportunities, not less, just because Uh, uh, maybe individuals who are Hispanic or black at that Culver City High School are less likely to enroll in AP classes doesn't mean you should get rid of the stepping stone to AP honors classes. You should try to elevate everyone and give everyone equal opportunity. But yeah, you're never going to be able to guarantee equal results. Now, somebody in the comments wrote, look, uh, the individual in this speech here says, look, you know, you, 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 uh, you're you like seeing race more now than you've ever seen it before, and maybe that's the point, is to identify that yes, there are other races who have been dealt worse hands than white people. Some people call that white privilege, right? Maybe it is. I mean, to some degree, everybody has some level of privilege in some direction. Maybe we haven't found our own privilege yet, but by sticking to what we're bad at, we're really not trying to find what we're good at, and we're really just hurting ourselves, right? Uh, and I don't think it's it, it really beneficial to anyone to really feel guilty about some of the odd opportunities they had. I mean, I don't think somebody who plays poker and is dealt pocket aces should feel somehow guilty about being dealt that. They should make the best moves they can with the hand they have. Maybe you were dealt a two and a three, but then the board shows you essentially a straight and and and, uh, and, and you crush the person with pocket aces, right? So... Ultimately, I'm a big believer in not feeling guilt or trying to cast aside someone's success as an element of privilege but rather doing the best we can with the lot we're given and being aware that as individuals, as part of society, we should be encouraging our government to do everything we can so that they can provide more support to the people who need it the most which in the context of this example, yes, might be more support for uh, Black and Hispanic, but is that now necessary to make everyone in our society focus on guilt and pulling others down to sort of equalize the playing field? No, absolutely not. I I don't think that's the answer at all. I think the answer is more investment into poorer area schooling uh, and opportunities for individuals regardless of what their race is. Ultimately, we should, in my opinion, go back to the idea of being colorblind. And if there are individuals who are scoring lower scores, no matter what the color of their skin is, they should be uh, they should have opportunities to be able to elevate their level of education. Maybe they, maybe every student, let's just say, has a budget of fifty dollars per day for their education. Right? Let's just make that up. Every student has a budget of fifty dollars per day. I don't think it's necessary to say, okay, well, let's take $10 from the white person and give it to a black person and say, here's the black person, they're going to get a $60 education budget per day, and that white person gets a $40 budget per day. I don't think that is the right thing to do. I actually think the best thing to do is say, if everybody has a budget of $50 per day, and now you have somebody who's scoring maybe in the bottom 30 or 40 percentile, maybe the government says, you know what? These individuals scoring in the lower percentiles, we're going to spend 75 or $100 per day on them, but we're not going to take away from other people's opportunities for success because some people are scoring lower on tests. That's not the way to solve the inequalities that do exist via race today. And this is why I started with sort of the presidential example of, There's really no difference in your choice of your skin color and where you were born. The cards you were dealt with are what you were dealt with. And somebody shouldn't feel guilty because they were dealt with some cards that might be somewhat better than someone else's. You shouldn't feel guilty because you can see this video or hear it, whereas there's somebody else who's blind or deaf. That's unfortunate and they have to find their way. And and of course, they deserve more support all right, And that's sort of the idea is that, hey, look, if everybody's getting $50, hey, maybe the person who's blind or deaf, hey, you know what? Here's a hearing aid. Here's a government-provided cataract surgery or whatever, right? I'm a big fan of that. But let's not put blinders on the people who do have good vision, right? You don't need to wear the drunk goggles, so to speak, to make yourself equal to the others. That doesn't make sense. We should be focused on elevating society at all levels. That's really important. And I think this individual, the student who gave the speech, is really making the argument that maybe, rather than so visibly trying to bring everyone down to the same level, our schools should be focused on elevating everyone to their highest potential and that could be done by making sure everyone feels like they have the opportunity in America to become the best version of themselves they can. Look, you're dealt pocket aces? Hey man, here's how we're going to play the game, okay? We're going to go apply for that Harvard or, or Yale admission or whatever, right? And you're dealt pocket, you know, a 2 and a 7 and you can't even get a straight setup. All right, let's let's where where can we get you to the best level, right? Let's, All right, let's focus on maybe we can get into that community college. Then we're going to go, we're going to get straight A's there. Here's how we're going to help you get straight A's there. This is what I did, by the way. I went to community college and got straight A's for two years. What did I do then? I transferred to UCLA with a scholarship that helped me pay for my expenses. After UCLA, I could have gone into the workforce for a couple of years and uh, and and taken uh, uh, you know I could have gone to potentially Harvard Law or Harvard business right and apply at that level with the card uh, the cards that I had or the situation that I was in right and so at whatever level somebody is at hey look some people are going to be ahead of others but they should have the opportunity to achieve their greatest potential at that time I don't think it's necessary to say okay well you're not you're not there yet because of a health ailment or because of your elementary school education that set up poor foundation blocks, let's try to create an equal result for everyone. Let's bring the person who wants to apply to Harvard down to the community college level and the person at the community college level, you know, maybe up to to a four-year or or vice versa. Everybody's going to UCLA, for example. You know, you're not going to the community college, you're going to UCLA right away. You're not going to Harvard, you're going to UCLA too. Like, that's, that's not how it should work. That's my belief. I think everybody with the cards they're dealt should be uh, should be given the best opportunities that they have in front of them, and then they should be able to choose. How do they want to live in the world? You could take the jaded approach and say, I can never get ahead, or you can take the approach of honesty, integrity, more education, and work ethic. Uh, like I said, I, I think uh, I, and in some ways, tried to sympathize with these situations, growing up in a family that basically went bankrupt and was living paycheck to paycheck as German immigrants, uh, you know, with an accent in, in school and not being able to, I mean, basically being in remedial English classes through like third or fourth grade, uh, and, and then deciding, okay, well, I could look at my my lot and say, oh, you know, we're poor, and and uh, I have an accent, and I can't read as well as others, and I'm, I'm having to get tutoring just to stay, you know, to, to try to get ahead, but my parents can't can't really afford that, so we're getting tutors that can't really, right? like that, Taking that and, and then working myself up to where I am now, That that that's in my opinion, a choice. Of course, it involves there's a lot of luck involved in that as well. I mean, if you're in the right place at the right time, that's freaking awesome. You know, it was a lot easier to start a YouTube channel in 2008 when I did, or in 2017 when I got really serious about it, than it is today, right? So Some of that is luck, so by no means am I trying to say there's no luck in our world, but I'm a big fan of, of believing That everyone uh, has has uh, has the opportunity to improve uh, their situation, regardless of what cards they were dealt. And I don't think it's necessary to bring down others who have a better uh, hand uh, than uh, to to sort of equalize the result with those who have a worse hand. That's my take. So hopefully, uh, hopefully you you have. uh, some similar thoughts, but if you don't, I'd love to hear your commentary as to what, why, where we might differ. Uh, and even if we differ, don't worry, I still think we can have a beer together, because I, I, we all know I won't say no to that. All right, let's go on to the next. Uh, does this mean Kevin is a Russian agent? No, I'm not a Russian agent. <laughs> I'm not even Russian. <laughs> That's, that's quite odd. <laughs> uh, I ate Mickey D's last night. Man, that stuff tore me up. Oh God. You know, you gotta be careful. One of the things that I found, at least like from a health point of view, is if you have high, a high saturated fat diet right before bed, you will feel like garbage the next day because your your, your digestive system really slows down at night and high satty fats will mess up every cell in your body. So stay away from high satty fats. It's gonna be like oils and french fries, potentially trans fats, terrible, those are unsatties. but anyway, Um, hamburgers, red meats, basically everything you get at McDonald's is extremely high in saturated fat. Perfect way to spike your cholesterol and destroy the ability for your cells to operate appropriately the next morning, especially if you eat it late. So if you're ever gonna go to Mickey D's, personally, I recommend no later than lunch. Uh, you know, and I've done it before. I've done it many, look, I, I've gone in and out and done the animal styles, you know, at, at like 11 or midnight. It's so delicious, but it's a terrible idea for the next day. It's almost like getting blackout drunk and then trying to function the next day But because you, you know, you made that decision at night. That's my take. <laughs> the poor can't afford to eat healthy. I don't. I mean, I don't necessarily agree with that. You know, I don't think it's terribly expensive. To uh, I think there's a lack of education there, right? I don't think it's terribly expensive to to buy, you know, loaves of bread and and uh, and and vegetables uh, and and, f- and and to some degree like a large watermelon. Uh, like, yeah, it means you're going to have to cut the watermelon. Like, don't go buy the pre-cut stuff, you know? It means you're going to have to make the sandwiches. It means you're going to have to, you know, make the cereal and stuff. It's a lot, you know, the problem is, you know, when, when we're poorer, we, we work a lot. And it's like, well, I don't want to cook. I don't want to go through that effort. And go, don't get me wrong, like, fruits are more expensive. So, yeah, I mean, this is why we have food-supportive programs like EBT, right? Right uh, or, or, or charities that, that, uh, I mean, there are, there are food banks all over the place that provide very healthy foods, uh, whether that's breads or fruits or whatever, or vegetables, vegetables are not that expensive. I mean, people are like, oh, it's, it's hard to eat healthy. I'm like, are you kidding me? You could have, you could buy like a $2 can of, of, uh, a beans and or a peas and carrots, which are delicious by the way. I love these. In fact, I'm going to tell Lauren right now, we got to buy some more, uh, uh, more of them and restock. Can we, can we get more green peas and carrots? I love that stuff. Super cheap. And I guarantee you, you eat a can of, uh, of, of peas and carrots. You're having way more, nu- uh, you're at the 99 percentile of nutritional intake that day. Nobody's eating their veggies, man. And, and they're surprisingly cheap. Uh, and, and phenomenally healthy. Like, I'm the kind of guy who go to a restaurant and be like, yeah, I'll, I'll take the steamed broccoli and the Brussels sprouts and stuff, and now I know that's kinda like, oh, you have the money to get them from a restaurant. I know, because I'm lazy. I don't, I, don't, I don't wanna cook my food, okay? Like I used to. When I had no money, I made my own food. Now I don't, okay? But, uh, but yeah, no, nobody seems to like veggies. But yeah, they're surprisingly cheap when you cook them yourself. You could, you could have a lot of healthy food for, for very inexpensive prices. What's the best vitamin to substitute for veggies? Oh, don't even get me. No, 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 oh, no, no. Now, okay, I uh, look, I got more like financial stuff to cover, but now you just straight up pissed me off, so I've got to deal with it now. There's no vitamin that is going to replace your nutritional intake from fruits or vegetables. This is the stupidest American belief that that we could have. And I hate to say it because I'm offending a lot of the nutritional industry right now and a lot of the people who make lots of money off sponsorships from from basically vitamins, okay? It's Garbaggio. Here's why it's Garbaggio. I'll give you a very quick example, okay? Want to know the Garbaggio? So there are these things called macronutrients, and I'll just give you a quick example. There are these things called macronutrients, kind of like fat-soluble vitamins, like vitamin A, or potentially water-soluble vitamins, like uh, vitamin C, right? The problem is everybody thinks all vitamin A is created equal, but the problem is vitamin A is actually just a giant umbrella of thousands of different micro vitamin A forms, and guess what? the vitamin industry does. It extracts the cheapest micronutrient of vitamin A that exists, and that's the vitamin A you're going to get. Whereas if you actually eat your vitamin A, first of all, you can digest it properly and and, and and process it appropriately with the caloric intake that you need to actually process vitamins. But now you're actually getting potentially, you go eat your you know carrots or broccoli or whatever, you're actually getting a whole slice of micronutrients of vitamins a, vitamin A. You're diversifying the type of vitamin intake uh, that, that your body needs uh, to see rather than just one concentrated form of a vitamin. Now we don't know what the long-term implications are on an individual's health of just hyperdosing basically one form of a micronutrient. We don't know, but that's probably the the most lazy way you could get your vitamins is, oh, just take a daily vitamin. It's bullshit. You're just getting one form of a micronutrient. Now, don't get me wrong. It's better than if you're not going to eat veggies and you're not going to get your nutritional intake. It's better than nothing. It takes you to like a par level at least, right? But it should not supplement And I hate that it's called supplement. It should not supplement your actual nutritional intake. Now, is it going to hurt you to take a daily vitamin? Probably not. You probably just pee 90% of it out. You know, some of the vitamins are are fat soluble. You have to be careful about overdosing those, but those are a little harder, right? The vitamin A, D, E, K. Those are your fat uh, soluble vitamins. You have to be careful on those. But are you really gonna overdose on like vitamin C, you know, or your B vitamins? Probably not. Those are water soluble vitamins probably not a big deal, but, uh, or, or you know, if you're a vegetarian, it's going to be a little harder for you to get your B12, right, uh, but, uh, but, but yeah, N- no, no, sorry, triggered, angry, no, <laughs> uh, yeah, vitamin rant, sorry, do <laughs> not what you get yet, but well, that's what you get on the weekend, okay, you're going to get, uh, uh, Kevin, who, who's going to rant on different topics, that's called the Saturday Meet Kevin Report. You never what, never know what you're gonna get. <laughs> never, never know what you're gonna get. Sorry, look, I, I don't care what it is. I'm a big fan of, of, uh, of, of researching a lot of stuff, and it really tell, it makes me so excited about the world and like life, because like there's so much to learn. It's so exciting. Um. Hmm. I disagree with this, not saturated fats, it's processed seed oils that make you sit, Kevin, it's saturated fat that is healthy. Dude, you need to check yourself because saturated fat is directly associated with massive increases of, of, uh, of uh, cholesterol in, in humans. And, and maybe you're just saying, oh, okay, it's, it's, it's you know, because of the processed oils and stuff. Dude, processed oils turn into trans fats, which are unsaturated as well, which are extremely unhealthy. But you wanna know what's healthy? I'll get into it with you, okay? What's healthy is a one to four ratio of omega-3 unsaturated fat intake uh, and a four ratio of uh, uh, omega-6 intake, right? So you have have at least one uh, to four ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 intake. But guess what the American diet is? It's like a one to 32 ratio, it's horrible. You wanna have healthy fats? You look at uh, poly and monounsaturated fats, which you find in things like uh, olive oils. That's an omega-9. You find it in nuts. But, you know People look at nuts and they're like, oh, nuts are fatty. You look at uh, dry roasted nuts. Yeah, they're extremely fatty. Healthiest food you could have in life. Healthiest food. You wanna lose weight? Nuts it's an amazing tool because fats make you feel full but these are unsaturated and healthy forms of fat that actually make you a healthier more functioning person you feel full longer because they're they're, they're a healthy unsaturated fat not to be confused with a trans fat or a saturated fat although nuts do have some small trace amounts of saturated fats as well and you could actually lose weight productively people don't like to hear that but it's you know it's just, it's just my take anyway there, there's your meet Kevin uh, n- nutrition rant. <laughs> okay, I'm done with nutrition now. I got another thing to... Uh, uh, I, I, we we got to talk more about like some other topics. All right. So, let's see here. So, the next thing we're going to talk about is... Okay, so, we talked about stock. Oh, this was fascinating this was more entertaining as well rather than just strictly finance but let me I do really quickly just for the sake of it want to jump over and looking at some of our latest data really quick I just want to see how breakevens and such ended yesterday so let's look at uh, some finance stuff really quick so let's look at the five year break even and I quickly want to see how the week ended yesterday uh, because yesterday was flying uh, and, and we landed in like hellish weather it was crazy. Uh, boy, I uh, yesterday was like my second, like n- most nail-biting landing ever. One was crosswinds going into St. George, Utah, which I I've had on on commercial flights as well, like crazy crosswinds, it's scary. Uh, but uh, this was uh, this was heavy wind and uh, and rain and crosswinds. But it wasn't as bad as St. George uh, coming into L. A. yesterday during the flash flash floods. Yeah, that was that was fun. If you like roller coasters, that was fun. But I, I try not to fly where the weather is bad. Uh, but when my home has bad weather, I'm screwed. <laughs> all right? Anyway. All right. Let's look at five-year break-evens and, and financial conditions. <laughs> not all nuts are created equal. <laughs> oh, dear Lord. Yeah, you're right. They come in different colors and flavors. Oh God. Okay, so where were we? We were going to talk about finance. Okay. Wow. Interesting. All right. So, the the Goldman Sachs Financial Conditions Index just broke a hundred again. Now, this is actually a really good thing because the Federal Reserve has become slightly uh, uh, bullish, dare I say, on uh, or dovish. I think that's the better way to put it. So, so let's let's rephrase this. Hold on a second. So uh, let's call this segment financial conditions. There we go. So yesterday obviously ended red, which suggests there's still a lot of fear left in the markets. That's absolutely true. We don't yet know what we're going to get for our February, March, and April data. But what happened to financial conditions? Something Jerome Powell at the Federal Reserve pays a lot of attention to. And what happened to our break-even inflation rates? Because what I'd like to see is as the stock market turned red and the 10-year Treasury approached 4%, What did financial conditions do? Are financial conditions properly and potentially adjusting for the pain that we've already seen in January data? And is that potentially enough to keep our stock market from lagging even lower? Well, let's take a look. This particular chart here is a chart of the Goldman Sachs Financial Conditions Index. And the Financial Conditions Index is made up of the value of the dollar, the value of stocks, the value of housing, the value of a treasury bonds. It's a little bit of everything. A lot of it is based on the value of uh, the uh, treasury yields. So let's go ahead and uh, see if we have any kind of trends here. So first of all, it's worth noting that right now, we are sitting at financial conditions that are as high as what we last saw at the end of December. Remember when everybody was basically paper handing for uh, tax loss harvesting? Well, that's roughly where we sit right now at a scale of financial conditions tightness. We're sitting at around that December paper handing level. However, we're not sitting at the levels of financial tightness that we saw in September and October. And this is where we really started seeing financial or inflationary surprises. And we potentially really started bottoming in a lot of stocks. A lot of stocks saw their bottom in Q3 uh, um, uh, 2022. Now, is it possible that October did end up marking the bottom, aligning with the tightest financial conditions? Yeah, it is possible unless of course we get more inflationary surprises in the Feb, March, May, uh, April reports, which obviously come out April, uh, will come out March, April, May. Anyway, if we get worse reports, we're going to zoom up. We'll probably see the stock market test those bottoms. And so that's kind of interesting. If you align again, the bottom of the stock market with t- financial conditions, you can see why have we been read the last two or three weeks here? Financial conditions have been substantially tightening. Uh, And at the same time, we've had this alignment, the 10-year treasury yield has tightened to the tune of about 60 basis points. That could move mortgage rates in the real estate market up probably somewhere around 60 to 75 basis points as well. If we Google mortgage rates right now, we drop to our usual 740 credit score so we have a consistent look. Folks, we are back. And where are we? We are right back to the 7% credit score, almost sitting at 7.1, uh, or not for a credit score, for a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. That's pretty dang high. And this is symbolized and brought to us by the financial, uh, uh, Goldman Sachs Financial Conditions Report. So this is something we're really going to have to pay attention to. But what we'd also like to pay attention to is that, well, I'd like to say that that financial conditions tightening could be a sign that the market's already trying to take care of that January hot data for us. So the market's already at work. And as long as we don't get worse data in February, which comes out next month in March, maybe the pain that we just went through will end up being temporary. Now though, let's also look at the uh, five-year break-evens. How are we doing on five-year break-evens? Because five-year break-evens suggest to us, okay, is inflation going to get worse Or are we topping out on inflation? So we'll just, in this uh, portion here, focus specifically on what financial or what five-year break-evens or the market's predictor of inflation have been telling us for the past year. And that's very important because we know we are well above where we were when the Fed last pivoted in in 2018, at the end of 2018, where the five-year break-evens were sitting about 1.6%. We were trending in that direction in January, but unfortunately, the January data really ruined everything. Here is the chart of the five year break evens. And if we go ahead and draw a similar line over here, so let's go to our tool and grab a line here. What do we have? What we have is uh, a, a five year break even level that has peaked out about last week, maybe somewhere around Monday, Tuesday. And we're sitting at levels that are at the same inflation expectations of what we had roughly at the beginning of December. So really, we're relatively stable there. If we wanted to draw a larger downtrend, we can, uh, although that downtrend is not as perfect as what we've previously had, where it started to look like we were almost breaking the downtrend that we had. We had a nice downtrend here, and unfortunately, that somewhat broke here. So the downtrend just isn't as quick as what we had been hoping. And that's really to say that inflation's probably going to take a lot longer to bring down than we were expecting. And that's why we're seeing some of that red here. The good news is we've somewhat peaked again on those inflation break evens. And that's fantastic. So maybe this is a sign that we're not going to get back to that 4.3 treasury yield. We're not going to get back to that level of uh, of, of inflation uh, eh, that we saw previously. And maybe, just maybe, we could stabilize. Now, there is a thesis uh, that, uh, hey, we're going to end up double, in, double dipping with the next reports. But at least now. Could it show, hey, things won't be as bad as what we saw going into Q3, where we had uh, these these break-evens sitting closer to 2.7%, or potentially the break-evens that we saw in October? Well, maybe since we're peaking out slightly lower than where we were in October, maybe the worst is behind us in terms of looking at uh, the chart temporarily thanks to the January data. Again, we look at the January data and we kind of compare it to where the NASDAQ has been. We zoom out on the NASDAQ. We look at a Fibonacci retracement. You saw where we were on the break break-evens. Look at where that puts us. When we look at uh, the NASDAQ, for example, this is the chart of the QQQ. We have now perfectly retraced uh, on the NASDAQ uh, to our uh, Fibonacci level one up from zero here, right? Uh, Now, this is very, very interesting because it's almost like we perfectly got rejected at our second level on the Fibonacci, uh, and uh, now here we are at falling right back to our support which is the second level. Now in terms of a percentage for retracement, it's worth knowing that we got rejected at the 38.2% retracement. What that means is when we take when we say that the high of December of 2020 uh, or November in this case of 2021 is the peak and the bottom is potentially November or uh, excuse me, October of 2022, then we retraced 38% we got rejected and we fell to the next level, which is at about 23.6%. Right now, at least from a technical point of view, it seems like financial conditions have tightened enough to where we should be okay in terms of tightness, given this hot January data we got. We have break-even yields inflecting down, which suggests maybe we could have a slow bounce off of this 28% Fibonacci level. In my opinion, a reasonable trajectory on a technical basis going forward here could be a slow continuation of the trend that we've that we've had. Slow though, very slow. So for example, if we if we look for a trend here, I think probably one of the best places to draw that might be here. Let's see what this looks like. Uh, let's kill that. Let's draw a new line over here. Let's see if we can get a trend over here. If we suggest, hey, when could we potentially get to the 50% retracement line on a little bit more of a patient trend, it might take us until about June. And in my opinion, this trend line is a reasonable trend line to pay attention to. And it really shows us a ceiling for those higher highs coming off of the bottom. And that suggests maybe still bouncing around not yet breaking that 38.2% line until look at where that break lines up from a chartist point of view. That break to a leg higher breaks right here, March 21st. Now, why is that so interesting from a technical point of view? FOMC meeting, folks. The Fed's FOMC meeting is on March 22nd. This means from a technical point of view, for the next three to four weeks, maybe we'll trade sideways leading into that FOMC meeting where we'll get CPI and jobs data, but the market will mostly care about how is the Fed reacting and responding to that. And if the Fed continues on sort of this dovish path, even though we lost Lael Brainard from the Fed, she's gone over to uh, to be the director of the National Economic Council. She took Larry Kudlow's job. Well, his previous job, somebody else is there now, you know, Mr. V-shaped recovery. Anyway, that's the NEC. So Leo Brainerd left. She was the one of the biggest doves uh, at the Fed and now she's gone. You've got a pretty hawkish Fed actually right now. But you're even seeing some of the hawks like Mestra say, look, once we get to 5%, uh, we're good. Like, I mean, maybe we have some more small hikes to do, but the leading data we're seeing from businesses and companies we're talking to, which by the way, reiterates what I'm seeing in earnings calls and reports at companies, is that The tightening is happening. You're seeing it, especially with some lag, especially with the quantitative tightening still ahead of us. But anyway, potentially from a technical point of view, we could bounce off of the 23.6 NASDAQ Fibonacci level here, which is basically where we closed. That level, to tell you exactly, is 28964 we closed about two points above that at about 291. So, but we did touch that intraday. We almost perfectly touched the Fibonacci, uh, Fibonacci intraday. In fact, if we look at the low, eh, it was about 40 cents off. Pretty close. Anyway, is it possible that then we have this sort of volatile uh, volatility, maybe a slow trend up with volatility going into March 22nd and then a breakout around March 22nd, which is what, the, uh, at least for me, my technical point of view is pointing out? Yeah. And then the next resistance level is really going to be that 50 Fibonacci, in which case this trend, if it holds, could potentially say it's going to be June before we actually break that 50 Fibonacci level, right? So it's interesting. We'll see. But from a technical point of view, I think the retracement that we just had over the last three weeks is not a confirmation that we're back to uh, a longer-term bear trend, mostly because if you look at the longer-term bear trend, we've already broken that, right? We're we're, look at that. We're literally sitting on the 200-day moving average as support, and we're not anywhere near that longer-term bear trend, which would suggest longer-term or or second-leg lower, right? So, from a technical point of view, which, by the way, I talk about technical analysis a lot as well in the Stocks and Psychology of Money course, linked down below, along with all of my other courses, you can bundle up. Biggest and most popular are Stocks and Psychology of Money, Zero to Millionaire Real Estate Investing, followed by the Elite Hustlers course, which we have an Elite Hustlers live stream coming up after this video. Uh, those are linked down below with a flash sale going on now. Uh, you can learn about everything that I know and my perspectives over there. But from a technical point of view. I'm not very bearish right now. If anything, this is a moment right here. I'm actually tempted on Monday to potentially pull the trigger on some option trades. Uh, we are we, we were talking about those a lot in the live stream yesterday. So if you're in the course member stream, you'll see exactly which particular stocks are really prime for this option trade based on volatility analysis. And now based on a technical analysis on the NASDAQ, we could look at some components of the NASDAQ and maybe pull off uh, some some, uh, some good uh, yield farming, so to speak, on Monday. But anyway, those are my thoughts. Thank you so very much for watching this video. I've got to run. Appreciate y'all. Thank you so much for being here. And we'll see y'all in the next Meet Kevin Report. Good luck, everyone.